Hey everyone, welcome back to the TBD Podcast. It's only me, Heath Monsma. Um, James wanted to be here for this interview, but he had a work conflict. And we had a great interview with Mr. Glaive, uh, the director of Pioneer Orchestras. We talked about his childhood, how he got into music with his mother's music therapy profession. Uh, and then we transitioned to his education, how he very nearly... Uh, joined a record label and didn't become a music teacher and then finally uh, we talked about how prolific he's been in the online setting really kind of bringing the orchestra together despite the physical distance so this is a special episode not just because we have such a great guest but also because it is likely the last episode you'll be hearing for quite a while certainly the last one in this format as James and I have graduated from Pioneer High School and are now going off to college. But um, from both of us, I would like to say that we appreciate all of you who are listening and have listened. It's been an incredibly fun and fulfilling experience. And thank you guys. All right, enjoy. Today we have a very special guest on our podcast, the director of the Grammy Award-winning Pioneer Orchestras and Michigan String Teacher of the Year, Mr. Glaive. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you, Heath? I'm doing very well. So I'm very interested in getting into the virtual schooling aspect of things because you've been especially prolific in that area. But before we do that, we like to go chronologically on this podcast. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about where you grew up, your parents, uh, and maybe some early musical influences. Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, I... um... I grew up in Waterloo, Iowa, um, kind of a small town in Waterloo or in Iowa, but not a, um, uh, not one that was, uh, it was a town that had a lot to it. You know, there was a small art scene. There was, um, definitely a farming community surrounding it. Uh, but then there was also a college nearby. So it was kind of an eclectic mix. I had city in my front yard and cornfield in my backyard. Uh, No joke. That was literally my home. Um, And it worked out great. Um, I have a mother who is a music therapist as well as uh, a barbershop singer. And she uh, traveled around performing in a barbershop quartet for many years. And um, as a music therapist, you know, she kind of guided my interest in music. Um, and uh, my father was a stockbroker, so he had no interest in music, really. So my mother was really kind of the guiding light there. Um, what, what kind of got me interested in music was my mother, for sure. Um, you know, as a music therapist, there are several things you do. You use music as essentially a tool to help heal and help people, um, you know, reconnect with different parts of, of their being. And um, I was responsible for pushing uh, her instrument cart around nursing homes so we'd load it up with like a violin a banjo a drum an accordion a keyboard a guitar and we'd go from room to room in hospitals and nursing homes and we'd stop in and we'd provide you know 10 minutes of joy of music in their lives and we'd make notes about kind of how it would go Um, we'd ask their favorite songs go to the next room do the same thing following week come back and we would play those songs for them and we would connect with them on that level. And so uh, growing up, essentially, I learned most of my uh, or I became passionate about music for that because our music room was surrounded by like 15 different instruments that my mother would just go to one, pick it up and play their favorite song and learn it and then go play it. And then I would do the same thing on another instrument. 
And uh, so that's really what kind of got me excited about music. Um, and I'm doing a lot of shout out for music therapy, but it's so powerful. Uh, I, I, you know, the other thing my mother would do that was really, really unique was that she would, um, she would be the call that you would give, or she would receive calls when somebody was on their deathbed, essentially to go play their favorite music as they passed away. Wow. So in my, in my home growing up in the middle of the night, you get a call at two in the morning. We all knew what that meant. Mm-hmm. My mother had, she would get up, she'd go to the music room she'd play their favorite hymn or their favorite song, go to the hospital, sit with them and play it over and over as they passed. And that was a huge responsibility. And, yeah, yeah. um, there's a lot of honor in that. Uh, and, uh, it takes very special people to do that. So that's kind of where the interest came. Um, uh, I'm not sure if you want me to just go on from there or you want to. Yeah, no. So that, that was incredible. Um, I had no idea that music. So it was the primary audience for music therapists, um, people in nursing homes, the elderly, um, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, for music therapy, I mean, it, it's a wide range. You know, music therapy can be used for young musicians or young people as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but for my mother, she primarily worked in geriatrics. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Alzheimer patients, you know, she would walk in the room. They might not recognize her from week to week. But, um, you know, she there were some patients It was really powerful. They wouldn't talk to anybody all week. But my mother would step in the room and they would just sing at the top of their lungs, like a song from the 1940s. But then they wouldn't speak to anybody else. You know, it's a it was just a really powerful situation. And um, seeing that healing power work with music uh, inspired me to just keep going. Right. And there have been all those studies that music triggers memory and all those those lost emotions. That's that's really cool. Um, So did you have any particular affinity for any instrument um, in that? two-person band you had gone one that you stuck out to you more than the other yeah uh i mean my my favorite instrument to play is actually the guitar um even though i've been mostly formally trained on the double bass and piano a little bit not i can't claim a pianist but definitely the double bass is my main thing but the guitar is mine the guitar is the one that um i've never really received a lesson so to speak on guitar it's been all of me using my creative energy and watching others do it and mm-hmm. kind of um, going from there uh, instead of actually getting formal training. So that's why I kind of always protect guitar as kind of my own unique creative freedom thing. Um, uh, the bass, I have a lot more training and uh, there, there's definitely value to that and there's a right place for it. But mm-hmm. uh, right at this moment, the guitar is my favorite thing to play. I've heard some stories about you playing your guitar at the orchestra send off for the seniors. And that sounds like a really special and emotional moment. Um, almost made me want to join orchestra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all the time, yeah. yeah. So what type of kid were you in high school? Was it, were you um, a bee hauler as we would call them a pioneer, someone who was just really into music and the arts and all that stuff? Or did you have, um, an experience in high school that wasn't primarily centered around music what what were you like in high school yeah um you know i i was kind of a part of a lot of different um social scenes i guess you could say um Mm -hmm. you know i did play baseball i played basketball i played football um and i was a pretty serious tennis player too for a little while uh baseball i'm a a knuckleball pitcher i was really good at throwing a knuckleball (laughs) And um, what happened is I, I, I had a um, I had a medical checkup 
And they found something um, for me that, that could potentially have become cancerous. And it kind of, and it turned out that it was not that way, which was good, but it paused my entire playing life mm-hmm. as a athlete. And um, so I couldn't, I wasn't participating in sports at that time. And so I needed something else to kind of pick that void up. And so that's when kind of music started becoming more serious for me. And I, you know, I played the bass a lot more. Um, I was writing a lot of songs. You know, I'm a songwriter too. Um, And so I kind of started my high school life in kind of a more sporty scene with -hmm. music on the side. And it completely flipped by my sophomore year. And um, from there on out, you know, I was... um, the lead in several musicals and things like that, and just kind of participated in the whole art scene as my primary. But at the same time, a lot of my, you know, social outlets were with the athletes. So it was kind of a fascinating mix. Um, it felt, uh, it felt natural for me though. It was, it was, it was a great way to grow up. And um, yeah, I enjoyed, I enjoyed my time growing up. I was not the perfect kid. There's no way I was a perfect kid. Anyone <laughs> who ever went to high school with me knows that. But at the same time, um, I think, knowing some of the mistakes I made as a high schooler has made me a better teacher. Uh, I I feel like I can um, kind of anticipate some things from students that um, people who maybe had kind of a squeaky clean rise cannot. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. 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 There's a little bit of a loss of naivete there. I think some teachers. Right. Um, So let's get into that. How, when did you first realize that you enjoyed teaching that you enjoyed, um, instructing people in music? Was it, was it in college? Did you studied music in college then? Or so I, I, I wanted to be a music therapist. Okay. I, that just, that was my thing. I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a music therapist. So I went to university of Kansas, which has one of the top music therapy programs in the country. It, it has just phenomenal people there. And so, um, it's, it's, it, it is. Uh, it was a great school for therapy. It was also a great school for education. And with certain instruments, it was also incredibly strong. So I, I, I enjoyed my time there. I liked being just far away, far enough away from home, but close enough if I need it. You know, it was mm-hmm. perfect. It's like a six-hour drive. Um, and so I focused my attention on music therapy for the first year, um, and I took some education classes along the way. But at the same time. Um, I was kind of getting in a groove with the bass, like a, a lot. And there was, moment... <laughs> yes, precisely. <laughs> and there was this moment that really hit me. I, um, I was, you know, people kept saying along the way, you know, you might be a really good teacher. Have you thought about doing that instead of music therapy? And I said, yeah, maybe. Um, but I, I really like, I like the bass, you know, I also just want to play. And I was, I was starting to get good at it. You know, I was starting to, get gigs in Kansas city and in Topeka, like in around the area, you know? Um, and one, and that, you know, that was helping me pay for books essentially. <laughs> but, sure. um, there was a big moment where I was going to, uh, leave the profession. Or I was going to leave therapy and education and just be a bass player. And so I walk into my advisor's class and, or, or my advisor. And I said, look, I don't think I want to be a teacher. I don't think I want to be a therapist. Um, I think I just want to play bass. And he said, stay right there. He got up, he walked down the hall and he got his colleagues in music ed and they came down and they surrounded me and told me why I can't leave music education. (laughs) 
And they said, this is they what you staged can do. an intervention. Yeah. They did, essentially. <laughs> this is what you can do for us. This is blah, blah, blah. And they were basically like, give me, give us another year with you in the education cycle. Let us, let us try to prove that this could be something for you. And um, I agreed. And it was the best decision I ever made because I came out of there um, knowing I had people that really cared about the future of what I want to be. And uh, also knew enough to tell me like, look, you're good at the base, but the competition level is getting pretty steep. And we are not sure if you have that dedication on the base, but we know you can make a difference in this area. So I needed that reality talk. Um, and it, it, it worked out. And from there, I went on an intensive um, uh, kind of educational plan and I was out in four years and um, with an ed degree. Um, and I stopped the therapy degree after the, uh, or stopped doing the dual therapy degree after the third year. So I could just focus on education because it kind of was pulling me at that point. Yeah. Um, and were there any characteristics you think that they saw in you that made you made them think that you're particularly suited to education? What's sort of the philosophy that you brought towards teaching there that, um, that, that stuck out to those people at Kansas? Um, mostly my interest in, first of all, I was a pretty, I was a pretty decent people person. That's, mm -hmm. that's important. I showed that I, you know, I cared a lot about my colleagues. I was kind of somebody who, um, you know, I'd go to everybody's recitals. I'd be supportive of everybody. I would, um, try to bring people together to make music in new ways. I would be sitting in the orchestra and I'd have many scores on my stand sometimes, like following along, learning about the other parts of the orchestra because I was fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. And everybody else is like, what are you doing? You know, like, why are you following? You know, and, you know, most people in the know know that like, you know, if you just- It's enough to one, focus on your own part, yeah. Yeah, but it's, no, it's, it was, I wanted more. I was way more interested sure. in the whole, the whole picture. Mm -hmm. And then I was having these conversations with my conductors, like about kind of podium personality and how to kind of get the most out of your players, which is hard to do for young people sometimes. Mm -hmm. And they, they just kept saying like, you have, you have it, you have that, you have, you have the ability to uh, pull things out of your musicians. And, you know, if you just kind of shape up in these other areas, like get your pedagogy together, get, you know, blah, 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 you could be great at this. So. Sure. That, that's kind of how that worked. Okay, great. Um, so then from there, did you go straight into teaching or did you pursue, pursue master's education? Or I uh, went straight into teaching. I, I, had a, I had a huge dream um, coming out of undergrad. I was like, look, if, if I'm going to be a, an educator, I'm going to work so hard at this and I'm going to make mm -hmm. it happen. And so I said, I'm going to live in every corner of the country. I'm going to teach at every level. I have nothing that's going to hold me back right now. I'm going to apply mm -hmm. for jobs here, 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 here. So I applied for jobs everywhere. I went to Rutland, Vermont, and I had no cell phone reception and all this stuff. When, <laughs> I, when I went, flew out to Oregon, and I flew out, you know, I was, I was all over the place looking for jobs. And mm -hmm. I finally landed on one. I was like, here's my dream. I was like, okay, I'm not going to play in the violin yet. And everybody who's a musician who's listening to this and has heard me play, they know what I'm talking about. I'm a bass mm -hmm. player. So I was like, I'm going to take a job where I can practice the violin every day and get better at this thing because that's how I'm going to get better. So I took a job in Connecticut and it was an elementary string job. And so I had three orchestras at three different um, schools and I would travel. But then every day I would practice my instrument 15 to 20 minutes a day, violin, viola, cello, bass. Every day just to get better at the thing. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I kind of considered my first two years of teaching in Connecticut as kind of a its own degree in a way. I was getting all the education stuff, teaching in the day. And in the afternoon, I was just researching how to become a better musician myself. Mm-hmm. Because uh, without those tools, you can't do this gig. So um, I just tried to get better at it. So I went to Connecticut. So whereabouts in Connecticut did you go? Because I grew up um, around that area. I Technically in New York, but right at the border of Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. So I live in Stanford, Connecticut. And then I was, okay. uh, but I taught in Darien, Connecticut. Okay. I, we used to play them in hockey. Yep. All the time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, a very affluent community. I mean, I was driving a 1986 Astro van, like, <laughs> and in these parking lots of these, these amazing cars and everything, right. you know, and the, 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 the music teacher, you know, it was just, it was just strange, but mm-hmm. it was fun. Um, yeah, so that was it. So, yeah, that was almost more of a personal growth type of gig then. Um, so you could teach elementary and then work on your own things. So from there, where did you go? Did you, um, after you spent your two years there, developed, um, what was the next step? Next step. Okay, so two years um, in Connecticut, there's this little place called New York City. Okay. Okay, sure. So I would train little down. New- yeah, yeah. So I had a lot of friends like Manhattan School of Music and Juilliard. So I would train down mm-hmm. every weekend to the city and we would just hang out. We'd go, you know, we'd go listen to live music and, um, you know, gig here and there. Not very much, but mostly just kind of experiencing the culture. And um, I, I kind of fell in love with um, the jazz string scene at that time. Like I just, I, I was, you know, I'd walk around New York and I'd hear these amazing hole in the wall clubs. And I just see these uh, incredible things happening. So um, uh, in my second year in Connecticut, I put together like a jazz string jam in Connecticut in my basement. Like I'd invite people over and we'd (laughs) just experiment with jazz string playing. And so I got kind of hooked on this, but then I also knew like, well, I kind of want to grow in the education world too. So I, I, bottom line is I started looking for places where I could feed all of these things I wanted to do. Um, so I reached out to uh, the University of Oregon, who had a few people who I knew who were very well respected in music education. And um, they brought me out and uh, they gave me a stipend to do um, a master's there. Basically, I would conduct one of the orchestras. And I took uh, the entire undergraduate jazz sequence of improvisation on every instrument, violin, viola, cello, and bass. And um, I didn't do it well. Pretty sweet deal. Yeah. It was, I didn't do it well, but I had two yeah. years, once again, another two years where I could just dive in and just try to get the most out of it. So I started writing a jazz uh, kind of method book okay. to fill in some holes of curriculum. Um, and at the same time, I would be in rehearsals and I would be the cover conductor for the main orchestra as well. It was a very strange mix, but it was it was perfect for my needs. And they were very supportive and I can't thank them enough for letting them do that. So that was the next step. Right. Well, wow. It sounds like you just throughout your career have taken on like several different a- aspects of things all at once. Mm-hmm. Does, does that ever get hard to manage? Is that at all a, a stressor or uh, something that it, it can distract from other aspects? Or do you do, do you feel like you can juggle all those various aspects of your career simultaneously? Yeah, it's the whole thing, like master of none thing, right? Or whatever. Right. Um, right. I, for me, I, I've never looked at it that way. I look at it yeah. like, here's the challenge in front of me. Here's an opportunity in front of me. I'm going to I'm gonna go for it. I've been very optimistic my whole career about these things. 
you know, if, if somebody tells me no, I'm usually the first one to say, why not? You know, like, why not? <laughs> and then I kind of work through it there. Um, it, the, it does have its negatives uh, in so many ways. You know, there's still several holes in my pedagogy as a teacher uh, that I'm still filling in, um, you know, and with my, my jazz focus, you know, once a pioneer came calling, that kind of had to take a side seat, but that was, you know, 80 hours a week of my life for, you know, a, a good chunk of time that I was in completely in, engraved in um, or entrenched in. So, you know, uh, you get better at it as you get older to focus your attentions and uh, try to do it for the right reasons. And um, and then you, yeah, you serve what's in front of you, essentially. Sure. Uh, so you said Pioneer came a call and is that how it happened? Did they come out and recruit you or... Was it, was it a mutual job application? How did that situation pan out? Um, so, okay. Uh, I was ending my two years in Oregon. I was trying to mm-hmm. decide what to do. Am I going to just focus on finishing this method book? Am I going to go teach middle school now? Because I wanted to mm-hmm. grow with the students. Am I going to move to Florida this time? Because I want to go to the, <laughs> go to the other corner of the country. I, I yeah. didn't care. I didn't care. I was like, yeah. look, if I'm going to be good at this gig, I need to know what's going on everywhere. Yeah, I'm not going to sit in a community and be myopic about it. So, um what happened was I, I applied for a few jobs um, and two of the top jobs open at the time were Pioneer Orchestras as well as one in Salem, Oregon. Um, I, uh, I applied for the Salem, Oregon job. It did not work out. I was, I was um, the runner up for that. But the next day I flew to Ann Arbor and um, I had nothing to lose. So I, I just went for it. Everything I did was just try to make the ensemble better. Um, I was very honest about everything. I remember looking at the trophies and I'm like, that's pretty impressive and cool, but are your students happy? <laughs> like, is, 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 are they happy? <laughs> uh, so I, I really didn't worry about uh, anything. And uh, I think they appreciated the honesty there. Um, and then they, uh, they asked me to stay back a little bit and I stayed back and I missed my flight. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, they hired me. So uh, I made the decision to just go for Pioneer. Great. Uh, and then he, that's interesting to me that you asked if they were happy. That was your first question after seeing all of the achievements and the accomplishments that we put up over the years. Um, did you go about changing anything once you got in there from a, uh, from a culture standpoint? Okay. So um it is human nature for many people to be competitive and mm-hmm. to have that be their driving force to how they succeed. Mm-hmm. There's also, it is also human nature for people to not want anything to do with that. But the, the reason I create music and the reason I think most people create music is because it serves a personal joy. It serves something that you can't quantify. It serves that thing that helps your heart, helps your human spirit. And that's Music what therapy. I, yeah. Yeah. So I've kind of taken a therapy approach to the whole thing. I, I have so much respect for the history of the Pioneer Orchestra program. The, the people who set it up and, you know, I listen to the recordings and I'm like, how could they do it? Are you aware that in Ann Arbor Public Schools, they taught music education over the radio in 1920s? I think it was the 20s. Over the radio. That seems impossible. That's that doesn't seem feasible. They didn't have upbeat music back then. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, Ann Arbor has been on the forefront of so many things and we've built these incredible performing arts programs, you know, 
The band's orchestra requires all these other things, right? We, we have those abilities and we have the University of Michigan. We have amazing private teachers. We have financial investment. We care about the arts like we care about our sports. That's, that's what we want. At the same time, there are a lot of people not taking advantage of that. And why is that? Is there an avenue for them to be successful in music? Is there a place for them to feel comfortable in that music? Can you really achieve at that level if you don't have that support? Mm-hmm. And so for me, over the past 13 years here, I've done everything I can to protect the integrity of the top of the top. I've tried my best to do that. And in my first few years, I started building the bottom two. And it was not it was not initially met with a lot of positivity. But that was not my philosophy. Like, listen, this there's more to this group than the symphony orchestra. And they're amazing. They're a gem. They're a gem. I mean, worldwide. But what do these other ensembles feel? What can we give them to make them feel special? What can we give them to give them an opportunity to grow and feel like they're a contributing member of this program? So most of my work has been trying to build that. Um, I started Pioneer Orchestra Camp, which didn't exist before this happened, which is a way to mentor freshmen as they come into the program. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided I was going to travel with all orchestras starting my third year. Whenever I traveled, whoever wants to come, they can come. No problem. Um, I've, I've kind of taken the focus off of that. Now, there are times I've entered some competitions with groups. There are times we've done some big performances that are special and unique, and I want to protect those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the idea of the fact that some of my seniors get to play concertos. I love that stuff. But most of the difficult work and the meaningful work that I have to do is building the other stuff. So that's where I'm at. Sure. Is that what kind of got you to finally settle down in Ann Arbor, that long-term project um, of building from the bottom up? Because it sounds like up to that point, you were a little bit of a rambling man. You went all the way <laughs> over the country. I'm about a rambling man. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I did. I just, you know... There was a period of time where I could have left Ann Arbor. I I had people trying to get me there for their doctoral programs and DMAs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you should go teach college. You go teach college. I'm like, come on now. I teach at Ann Arbor Pioneer. Do you know the quality of the musicians and the quality of the people in front of me? Like some of my best musicians are just the nicest people ever. And frankly, you don't get that at college very often. It's just a different scene. It's not always the same. And I, I love the idea of giving them a fresh perspective of something brand new and um, just seeing what they do with it. it I, I just like the, I like working with the age group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the high school offers a sense of community that I don't think uh, college would do in the same way. It can, it can. I, I mean, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush, but I do think like this specific community when you have mm-hmm. so much support. Yeah. Sure. Um, so you mentioned that you've gone on trips with orchestras to Austria and, um, places like Carnegie Hall in New York. Um, where, which of those trips was the most special? If you could choose one, what were some of your best memories? Um, okay. Um, so trips for me have also Mm -hmm. been a little different. I, I've tried to choose destinations that are not the standard destination. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times people travel to go to like a competition. But for me, I went to San Francisco because San Francisco is awesome. (laughs) 
<laughs> and people got a chance to experience the local culture of San Francisco and watch the Golden, mm-hmm. Golden Gate Bridge. And, you know, there was no competition there. It was a side-by-side with another great orchestra. And it was just a way to go somewhere different. Um, so uh, I don't think that had been done before, at least with Pioneer, to go to mm-hmm. California. Um, and then we did do Austria and Vienna. I feel I feel that's important to do occasionally. Um, gosh, we did Italy. Um, but once again, not to a competition. That was just kind of a different one. And then one of my favorites in a weird way, it was incredibly difficult to put together, was New Orleans. Yeah. Okay. I, I said we had the choice of something like um, some competition in like Florida uh, where you see Disney or go to New Orleans. I was like, we're no going to, yeah. <laughs> New Orleans. We don't need, we don't need another trophy right now. Mm-hmm. We need to just dive into a community and see what happens. So here's one of my favorite parts of that one was we, we visited a uh, retirement home and we performed for everybody uh, at that retirement home. That was really special. We would, and I gave them a moment of music therapy. Actually, they walked around the rooms. And right. I'm sure it was a full circle mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Uh, but then I also did a lot of stuff for them too. I mean, there's so many things we, um, we essentially had a festival. We flew a group out from Seattle, a middle school group who, uh, performed, uh, side by side with us too, um, at the event. Um, yeah, that one was unique. It, and it, just because it took, it took a, like a new village to make that happen, you know, and to, to get a little sense of, you know, what's going on in new Orleans and American music, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I think my orchestra needed that shot in the arm and uh it turned out to be a very successful tour in my opinion and then the last tour we did before um the shutdown was uh london and that was unique as well you know we we tried to kind of connect more to the history of string playing there and a little bit more about uh the the culture of 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 london and it was right during all the brexit talks so that was mm-hmm. that opened up great conversation as well on the buses and stuff Right, so, right. Sounds like these trips go way beyond um, any sort of orchestral knowledge and get much more into the history and philosophy. And yeah, I don't know if you've noticed, but I haven't them. really, I haven't really talked about like a performance hall. You know, yeah, it's mostly, yeah, yeah, yeah. About, it's mostly about the experience. And the performance hall is great. We were scheduled to perform at Carnegie this year, mm-hmm. um, uh, like three weeks ago, something like that. And so that was a bummer when that day came because the students need those opportunities too. But um, yeah, we just didn't get it this year. Well, so let's let's finally get around to talking about virtual school. Sure. So when walk walk me through your um, conversations with the Upbeat app because you were really at the forefront of that, right? The whole the whole process of um, tracking down those guys and figuring out how it worked and testing it and all that because now now it's used by all of the Pioneer Music Program, right? So um, how early did you jump on that? What was your connection there? Um, okay, so I, I, I'll be as brief as I can. I discovered the application when a colleague of mine in Georgia sent me a message and said, hey, uh, you got a second? I want to show you something. I have two students who, two former students who are working on an application, and he showed me Upbeat Music App, and I immediately was like, this could be used for education. This could, this could be turned into an educational tool. Originally, it was just for people to play chamber music online and sync up. So... I started bugging those guys like crazy because I knew I had a feeling we were going into a virtual year of school and Mm -hmm. that, and the way we do ensemble couldn't happen. Um, 
And so I, I bug them. I text them like every day. Could this, is this possible? Is this possible? Is this possible? And as soon as they realized I wasn't crazy and I was actually trying to help, they started doing some of the things I was asking and putting in some of the tools to make it an educational feature. And so, um, you know, they did most of the work. I'm going to, they, this is their company. Um, my role was simply as an educator who was just trying to find a way to help, help students in the fall. So through all that, they built uh, Upbeat Music App. It became more popular. You know, it started with just up to four people at a time. Then it became 16 people that could record at a time. And then they found ways to make it up to 140 people. Um, and so some of the unique uh, features they have are things that I suggested for them, which is kind of cool. It's a cool thing because right now, you know, Upbeat Music App has something like 193 account, 193,000 accounts worldwide. They wow. have, you know, they have like 5,000 subscriptions to school schools and things like that. So, you know, they've, they've built it into an educational uh, tool that uh, a lot of people are using. Right. Um, and um, I, I'm very proud of the work we did early on with that. And um, the fact that Ann Arbor uh, was able to um, agree to sign on to use it and give it a shot, that, that was wonderful. Um, and I think it's helped a lot of people. It's not the perfect tool. There's no perfect tool for online orchestra education or ensemble education, but it definitely provided uh, a new avenue for exploration and being creative. And um, I, I'm very proud of the work we've done. And uh, you know, to this day, I still um, uh, advise them educationally. Um, you know, I had a meeting with them last night, and I just said, "You guys should consider this, 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 this," because they they're not educators. So um, I kind of bring that voice to them. Well, great. Um, well, I, I just was shocked that you, so you heard it from a colleague was the initial impetus of your connection there because it seemed like it came out of nowhere, came out of the blue, um, that it was completely your own initiative. And it's it's a really incredible song. Like I've watched those orchestra concerts and it the way it all syncs up is just like the real thing. I mean, it, it feels like I'm watching a recording of a real orchestra concert, um, which is pretty incredible. And I also saw that you produced about an hour long video on this whole online situation um, and how you can kind of develop a human connection in this time. Yeah. What, what drove you to start that? And um, what has your philosophy been around that? Online connection? Um, so when the pandemic started last mm -hmm. year, I, I was at a loss with what to do with my students. Um, right. You know, we, we have this we have this motto that kind of is the crux of what I believe our program should uh, be, and it's been built with the support of students and kind of what they show. That we focus on musicianship, citizenship, and friendship. Those three things. So before the pan when the pandemic started, all of my assignments last spring mm -hmm. were built on those three things. You know, something to do with musicianship, something like. Uh, uh, with citizenship, go play for a friend, go, um, you know, FaceTime your grandparents and play them a lullaby or whatever. And, you know, just stuff like that to kind of keep spirits up and keep them playing. Mm -hmm. um, have a practice buddy on Zoom and you play back and forth and stuff like that. And that was kind of how I started the whole online education. Yeah, and I was then, part of a couple of those assignments. Um, I was the, the witness to some practicing. <laughs> 
yeah. I know they're wild, but yeah. I mean, you know what you do see in those videos is you see smiles at least somewhat, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's important. And then, um, I, I, but I knew in the fall we had to go another direction. So, mm-hmm. um, I, with upbeat, I, I was trying to find ways to, there's this thing called a feedback uh, loop in education, right? So what happens in music education, you record or you rehearse something, you give feedback, students give each other feedback, you do it again, it gets better, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I call a feedback loop. That feedback loop is what has been missing. Because if students sub- submit individual assignments alone on their own, first of all, it's not enjoyable. Second of all, you're not getting a larger picture. And it's frankly creating 10 times more work for me. It just makes <laughs> no sense. Right. Right. So with Upbeat, you can submit your video, you have the video together, you watch it together, and then you can all talk about the feedback and then you can do the next rep and it gets better and better and better. And so you're quickening that feedback loop and making it more meaningful. Mm -hmm. Um, At least that's the goal. It's not perfect, but it definitely it definitely does that. So uh, California um, Music Educators Association reached out to me and asked if I would do an hour long presentation about what I'm doing with virtual learning, uh, because I, I, my whole focus was trying to figure out how to make human connection continue to work. Sure. And um, I, I think I, we've succeeded in many ways. In other ways, I think we haven't, but that's a no fault to anyone. I just feel like um, the situation uh, is not perfect to achieve that, but we have definitely worked our butts off trying to make it happen. Sure. Well, have you seen anything this year um, in terms of fostering human connection that you might continue post-pandemic? Just any techniques or anything? Yeah. So here's the deal. There are some students in my classes that, for whatever reason, um, do when we were in person, did not communicate with me like at all. Mm -hmm. They just struggled to communicate with a teacher. But though, but now, send messages to me, kind of opening up much uh, with, you know, like deeper thought about not just music, but life. There are, you know, for every student who's really struggled with uh, this virtual learning, you know, I could probably find another student who's kind of thriving in that way and trying to find a way when we all come back in person that those loud voices that are really good at that human connection in person don't drown out those folks who have started this opening up process. You know, I feel like there, there's something there about, you know, you can send me a message on Zoom that is maybe a little bit more open than when you would tell me in person. And my my concern is that those folks are kind of kind of go back under the rock or something, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want that to happen. So I, 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 I think there's going to be a lot of musical tools that we're going to have to rebuild, obviously, rehearsal training, um, stamina. Um, one of the biggest things that is on my mind is, you know, how does accountability work post-pandemic? What is that like? Mm-hmm. Um, we've all been asked as teachers to be graceful this year. And I feel like, you know, I've done a heroic amount of being graceful sure. with collecting assignments right, right, to a point. <laughs> but at some point, are, can we have accountability back? Mm-hmm. Is, is what shape will that look? What will that look like? And I think it's the number one topic on my mind. Just how how do we kind of morph into still having goals and going forward 
um, after this when we've had a year of expected empathy, and, right. which is fine, but it makes me nervous for next fall. Right, right. You're worried about potential long-lasting damage of kids not turning in their assignments, turning them in late. Um, yeah, how that might translate to the classroom, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but for those kids that you mentioned, the ones who you're a little bit worried might go back into the rock, the ones who have really kind of come out of their shell and communicate with you, do you have any plans for how to foster that communication in the future? Um, just that's to that's be That's a great up. question. I'm trying yeah. to figure that out. Like, we have a we have a pretty strong mentorship program in the orchestras, and we've tried to keep it going this year. It's just not easy. So mm-hmm. I think the first thing we do is we strengthen the mentorship program again by really focusing on the current juniors and sophomores and not just saying mentor this incoming ninth grader, but give them so many more tools about it. You know, um, and if a, if a student's not getting back to you when you're communicating with them, you know, let's, let's talk out about new approaches to that. Or, um, you know, you need time face to face and you need time to get to know students outside of the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, uh, um, or outside of the musical expectation. And I think I just have to work twice as hard at that next year. And I, I'm going to make my mentors do the same thing because it's just, it, it, it's, it's necessary. Sure. Uh, question about the mentorship program. Did that exist prior to you coming to Pioneer, that um, kind of top-down senior stock to freshman, et cetera, approach? Uh, yeah, there's always been mentorship in music ensembles. I mean, you, you okay. can – it, it just takes different shapes. I think for me, I, I've made it kind of one of the main things, though, during difficult times mm-hmm. and even non-difficult times, particularly the past three or four years. Um. I, there is something very valuable about an incoming freshman who has a mentor, who's a senior, who not only plays well, but carries himself with, you know, integrity and to have that person to just talk to and say, Hey, here's what you need to do your sophomore year. Take this class, not that class. And then you're going to get that free hour, your senior year to do what, you know, that, that stuff, um, is just, um, it's so, so valuable without, without it, I don't know. I don't know how a group functions. I mean, I, you, I mean, to talk to any senior right now. I bet you could, they could name when they were a freshman, somebody that they look up to in a music sure. program. Yeah. Well, I think that's great that you foster that sense of community. Um, okay. I have one final question for you here sure. and it's related to nothing, but a little birdie told me that you were once in a red hot chili peppers cover band. Yes. Okay. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, tell me about that experience, how you even got into that and um, how long you were part of that. Okay. So, you know, when I, if you're a, if you're a songwriter and you play bass and you play guitar and you're in high school, Mm -hmm. you're going to play in bands. I mean, I played in probably three or four bands in high school and um, the Red Hot Chili Pepper, that was, that was a good summer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> basically we set up a drum set in my basement and that incarnation of one of our bands um we needed a drummer that summer i, I think our drummer was off uh, doing basic training or something so i just picked up the drums that summer and just constantly played and played and played and played and played, and played um and i've been in several bands you know what when i was in college i was in a band called two to tango who um 
uh, I guess I didn't tell that part of the story, but real quick, uh, Two to Tango is a band that was starting to take off in the Midwest. We were traveling around doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we were playing in a bar one night and the band Kansas was in the bar and okay, yeah. we invited them up and they jammed with us on stage. And at the end of the night, they offered us a recording contract. Whoa. And, yeah. uh, but here's the fun part. I had signed my teaching, uh, contract like two days before. <laughs> so everyone else in the band was like, we're doing it, we're doing it. And I'm like, I'm out. Wow. So that was the end of that. <laughs> well, <laughs> what ended up happening? Did, did they replace you? Did they go on? Nah, we, we were all pretty much convinced we were going to be moving on anyway. It was, okay. it was just, okay. a, it was just a funny little ironic. Uh, right. Right. That's the sliding doors moment for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, um, thank you. This was a great interview. Very enjoyable for me. Um, and I appreciate you finally carving out the time. It's been, it's been an interview I've been hoping to do for a while now. I'm glad we finally got to do it. Thank you for doing this for Pioneer. I I believe Purple Man. I love this place. And, uh, I'm excited about the next steps, not only in music education, but for our school, because like, you know, we're coming out of a year of hurting and I am, I for one am invigorated to kind of reimagine some things. So sure. I'm excited. Great. Great. Can't wait to see what you come up with. All right. All right, man. Have a good rest of your day. All right. See ya. This has been another episode of the TBD podcast. My name is Heath Monsman. And I'm James Catanzaro. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.